Most Unforgettable Characters 4. Mr. Hayford of Cameroon by Brian O'Brien Sometime during the year 1920, while I was employed by a French company to open trade between the hinterland tribes of French Equatorial Africa and the West Coast ports, I met Mr. Hayford. I was trekking through the mahogany forest area of what was then South Cameroon, following footpaths trails. My 120 carriers were laden with salt, cotton prints, machetes, fish hooks, and other goods which I hoped to barter in exchange for ebony, palm oil, rubber, and ivory. No European had been in this region for years. Signal drums had advised the forest people that my destination was Ikin, a little Bulu village about 150 miles inland on the Campo River, two degrees north of the equator. As I neared the village, I noticed that the trail was cleared of undergrowth. Streams were neatly bridged with logs. Villages, instead of slanty collections of hovels I had seen so far, were rows of neat palm-thatch huts in spacious clearings. I came upon large gardens of yams, corn, and cassava. And just outside Ekim, a small cocoa plantation. I was amazed to hear my interpreter say, Cocoa belong Englishmen. He live Ikan. Entering the village, I found a clean-swept compound commanded by the Palaver House, a wall-less shelter used by the village elders for council meetings and general loafing. Beside it stood a fine figure about six feet four inches tall. He was dressed in an ancient white drill suit and canvas shoes whitened with clay. His face was hidden in the shadow of a white pith helmet. He removed his helmet with a low bow. I glad you welcome you, sir. He straightened up, revealing a coal-black face with straggling gray beard and a fizz of white hair. It is good to see Britishmen after so many years. I'm Mr. Hayford, Gold Coast boy, also Englishman. I shook his hand in some surprise. What was an elderly Gold Coast native doing in this remote little village? His eyes twinkled, and with anxious politeness of a host who hopes his house will please, You will stay long time? I pray you will allow me to be your fine friend, sire. Mr. Hayford, I never learned his first name, was indeed my fine friend during the year I spent on the river. Without his tactful advice, my trade with the shy pagans of the region would have been impossible. The day after my arrival, he had the bolus clear a space on the river bank and build for me a bark and palm thatch house. With three rooms opening on a veranda, he refused payment. No charge, I beg, sire, he said with dignity. It is the bound duty of neighbors. His own house commanded a long clearing to the river. There were storehouses and drying racks for his cocoa and a canoe wharf. The earth floor of his veranda, living room, was covered with worn linoleum. On the walls were pictures from old magazines, and on a covered mahogany table rested an ornate kerosene lamp. The house was immaculate, 
kept so by three Bulu boys. Every morning the village chief met Hayford at his veranda steps, and they walked to the village, where Hayford inspected the clean little huts, made suggestions, praised the gardens, and left orders for the Bulus who worked in his cocoa plantation. At the end of each tour he gave the children small papers of salt, which they prized more highly than candy. The old men loafing in the palaver house cackled in delight when they halted to exchange jokes with him. He was like an old-time squire strolling benevolently about his domain. He got me a cook and saw that I had supplies with the best the Bulus could provide, fish, eggs, yams, corn, and peppers. Ripening bananas and pineapples hung from my veranda eaves. Every night after dinner, Hayford called on me, dressed in fresh-washed white trousers, a once-crimson velvet smoking jacket, and a black Turkish cap with a silver tassel that dangled beside his ear. Nursing in his big knuckled hands a small glass of brandy and puffing blissfully at a pipe I had given him, Mr. Hayford asked eager questions about the outside world. He accompanied me on my trip to the outlying villagers and watched carefully the trading, advising the chiefs on values of goods I offered. He was scrupulously fair. The natives have complete faith in me. I learned that his influence was felt over hundreds of square miles of the country. No chief was elected without his advice. All barter between villages had to have his approval. Natives trekked for days to bring him their problems. His decisions were accepted with touching confidence. His power was greater than that of the chiefs who admired and respected him. These poor natives look to me as their father, he told me. I must treat them like my children. One morning I learned part of the secret of his power. Mr. Hayford was a magician. Canoes from up and down the river had been pulling into his landing since dawn. Natives squatted like statues before his house. Their spears struck in the sandbank red earth beside them. He had invited me to sit on his veranda to witness what he called a cutting of palaver. At a series of drum beats, Hayford's door opened and two boys emerged. One placed a china teapot and a glass upon a table at the veranda steps. The other stood near and waved a large palm leaf fan. Then Hayford appeared, attired in black cotton robed on which were red zodiac symbols. On his head was a lofty cap. He wore steel spectacles without lenses. The natives bowed their heads and murmured the Bulu greeting, Mabolo. He acknowledged the salute with a seronious Mabolini, then poured water from the teapot and drank it. With a side glance at me, he again tilted the teapot over his glass, and this time a red liquid came out. He drank to the awed exclamation of his audience. A case came before him that of a woman whose goat had eaten peanuts in her neighbor's garden. Hayford sentenced the defendant to pay the plaintiff a piece of goat meat when the goat was butchered. 
an old woman complained that her village had placed her in an old hut to die, since she was no longer able to work. Hayford smiled down at her. Mother, there is a place for you in the shadow of my house, a fire to warm your skin and soft food for your mouth. Where is the chief of this woman's town? A husky young man stood up, scowling at her. You will bring ten yams every seven days, Hayford ordered, and your young men will build her a hut in my compound. Until this is done, there will be no trade with your town. All that day, problems of the bush people were solved with dignity, fairness, and humor. Hayford accompanied each verdict with a, con a conjuring trick. Just harmless deception, sir, he said, but they helped these poor people to mind my judgments. Gradually, through long evening talks with him and scraps of information from village chiefs, I pieced together his story. He was born in a well-to-do native family in a seaport in the British Gold Coast colony, attended a mission school, and then worked on his father's cocoa plantation. His knowledge of English ability to read, write, and deal with figures had in his knowledge of planting made him a useful manager. But in 1900s, when rebellion broke out against an ignorant and unjust white governor, he threw off trousers and shoes and donned the cloak and shield of a warrior. The rebellion was quelled and participants were brought to trial. Hayford escaped and made his way to the mighty forest that covered South Cameroon, halting at a tiny village only to eat and drink, then move on. At last he came to Aiken, an ideal hideout for a hunted man. The Bolus, medium-sized people, were flattered that such a statuesque stranger should come to them. They built me a house brought me food, and honored me like a fine man, he said to me. So I must always be a fine man to them. He learned their language and settled down in the river country. Remembering the neat, drained streets of his birthplace, he persuaded the Bolus to dig drainage ditches so that there would be no stagnant water to breed mosquitoes. He taught them to construct chest pits and persuaded the villagers that the practice of isolating the old and feeble and leaving them to die of starvation was wrong as well as wasteful. Let them sweep the village compound, he decreed. Thus they will keep dust from the cooking pots and save the lives of many of your children. The villages became neat, clean, and peaceful. Sickness deceased and the old people, happy to be useful, worked diligently. The narrow, winding trails, ambushes for enemies, both animal and human, were cleared and widened. The small, ill-tended gardens that had yielded barely enough for immediate needs were enlarged, drained and weeded, and surplus crops were stored against future needs. But the people needed machetes, hoes, cotton cloth, fish hooks, and salt. So Hayford had them collect wild liana rubber, which he codulated with limes and pressed into large balls. They trapped elephants and traded the meat with their villagers for ebony.
Then he took his men, laden with ebony, ivory, and rubber, to trade for necessities on the Spanish Guinea coast. For me, said Hayford, I got white man's clothing, shoes, a table, kerosene, and a fine lamp to read by. At first, he told me, he had worked under great difficulty in peril. Inter-village wars were frequent, and human sacrifice a regular ritual. That was not the fault of the people, he explained, but of the witchmen, who kept the natives in a ferment of superstitious terror. The witchmen hated me because I was helping the natives, Hartford said. One of them cut up leopard whiskers and put them in my food. These kill by tearing the entrails, but I ate nothing except what I prepared myself, and so escaped. Once a poison spear passed close to me on a trail. I knew I must overcome those men, or they would kill me. One day, while trading in Spanish Guinea, I found in a mail-order book an apparatus to make magic. I gave the trader my goods and begged him to write to America for the magic box. In a few months, word came that the magic awaited me. I journeyed alone to take it. Then at night I practiced until I could make things come from the empty air or disappear from my hands. When I was ready, I challenged the witchmen to a show of magic. Hayford's old eyes twinkled in the light of my fire. They wore hats of human skin and long cloaks of dry grass. Their medicine bags stank with evil things that were in them. People stood in the shadows between the huts. They wanted me to confound the witchmen, but they feared lest the witchmen win and later punish them. I palmed the egg from the mouth of the nearest witchman, smashed it in my hands, and held out to him a live chicken. See, I called to the people, the witchmen bring death, but my magic gives life. I threw metal rings in the air separately, and when I caught them, they formed a chain. Break it, I said. They could not. A witchman from downriver then ate smoking embers from the fire. I took a mouthful of kerosene from my lamp, and holding before my mouth a burning stick, blew flames upon him until his cloak was afire. He ran, blazing into the river. Now, Hayford finished, I am the witchman. But, in truth, my magic is just harmless tricks. Before I left the village, I wished to distribute gifts. Among my trade goods were discarded scarlet tunics brought from army disposal sales. Better give them only to chiefs, Hayford advised. Thus they will be big men in the eyes of their villages. He called in the chiefs and solemnly fitted them with the red jackets. They stood like ramrods, the faded red coats buttoned tightly across their muscular chests, as women murmured their admiration from the edge of the compound. I had reserved a surprise for Hayford, an admiral's coat with gold epaulets and much braid. He took it with shaking hands and put it on. It almost fitted him. He tried to conceal the tears that filled his eyes. Then he walked up and down the ranks of chiefs. You are wearing, he said, the coats of men who were great chiefs by virtue of their bravery and wisdom. So must you be brave and wise with your people. It all looked very comic. 
the row of chiefs whose breech clouts bunched out below the trim lines of their red tunics and whose sweating faces grinned with delight, and Hayford the stiff trails of his coat flapping against his shanks, the appellettes dancing on his shoulders as he paced before them, lecturing them on the duties they must perform to honor the coats they wore. But it was not funny to me. The splendid old man had transformed the bellus into a peaceful, contented people. For eighteen years he had been more than mentor and judge. His harmless tricks had proved to be strong magic indeed. He Found Poetry in Every Day by Robert Hillier For days I had been in that depressed mood which is the familiar aftermath of achievement, however modest. We work hard toward a certain goal, we accomplish it, and then, I suppose it is just the nervous reaction, we wonder if it was worth it. In my case, the completed task was a book. It had been out a few weeks, and everything was going well, except with the author himself. For me, the excitement was over. When I am in the doldrums, I go on long walks trying to escape myself, but I always take myself and my wretchedness along with me. One fine April afternoon, I found myself near Copps Hill Burying Grounds, a historic knoll that commands a view of Boston Harbor. At a distance, I could see the Navy Yard and the mast of the Constitution delicate against the sky. In my mood, it all seemed tiresome. I turned into a shop to buy an evening paper. As I came out, I noticed a little old man sitting outside in a wicker chair. He was carefully bundled and muffled against the April breeze, but his hands were bare and the knuckles red. He looked up at me, and there was a timid question in his faded blue eyes as he bade me good afternoon. I guessed from the way he spoke that he was wondering if I had time to chat. Time? I had too much of it. We exchanged a few casual remarks, and then I asked him, if his hands did not become chapped without gloves. Yes, they do, he said. But you see, he drew a composition book and a pencil from under the rug that covered his knees. I do a little writing now and then, and it's too much trouble taking off my gloves and putting them on. I glanced casually at a page. The handwriting was clear and neat. The language was foreign. I glanced curiously at a page. The handwriting was clear and neat. The language was foreign. I write in Polish, he said. I was born in Poland, but I grew up over here, married, and then went out west. We stayed there twenty years. Cheyenne it was, but my wife wanted to come back here, and so we did. That was a long time ago. I had sudden imaginings of a literary discovery. Then this is the writing you are doing in the story of your life? I asked. He smiled up at me. Oh, no. This, he tapped the book with his pencil, is of today. I am not interested in the past nearly so much as living here and now. He looked out over the hill. This is what I love. This moment. This sunlight. Our talk. I put these in my book. Then I never read it again. You never read it again, I exclaimed, my natural vanity, 
as an author made me incredulous. What do you do with it then? Does your family read it or your friends? He shook his head. No, my wife used to peek in, and when she thought I wasn't looking, he chuckled. Once, I just for fun wrote in it, My Catherine is getting very fat. Oh, we had a time of it. She pretended she hadn't read it, and yet she wasn't pleased with me either. That was funny. Then I told her we had lots of jokes together. As he told me more about his notebook, I became aware that I was in the presence of a man who was making an art of his life. He could not go anywhere. His legs were crippled with rheumatism, but he could look and hear and feel. He wrote in his notebook to stimulate his powers of observation. How far out were the Farsythias today as compared with yesterday? What did Mrs. Krauss buy in the store this morning to celebrate her son's return? Noting things down gave him a double savor of each small event. It sharpened his faculties. It enriched the passing moment. Then, too, he added quietly, it lets God know I'm paying attention. Pretty soon he began asking me about myself. I told him my name, which he noted in his book, and then the fact that I was writer of verse. A poet, he said, as if thunderstruck. His gaze traveled over me slowly from top to toe. Now I know I must be in the presence of a happy man. You have the key to all the beauties of that people, like me enjoy only from the outside. I make a list of the many things that give me pleasure, but you... You possess them. How could I tell him that it was he, not I, who was living the poet's life? I felt humble and unworthy beside him. But he had assigned me a role, and it would be shameful not to live up to it. I made the strongest effort to revive within me the sensibility and eagerness I should have possessed. I spoke of his philosophy as I understood it and I felt it warming depths of my heart where the ice had lain unmelted for years. I told him the truth he already knew, and that I had allowed myself to forget, how we must return to a delight in the small things of life, and take nothing for granted, not even familiar repetitions like the rising sun and the northward flight of birds. We spoke of the positive desire for peace among the peoples. We spoke of hope being reborn everywhere, that men and getting back to an appreciation of the timeless enjoyments earth offers, the small God-given things, which in a serene spirit can cause as much vibration as a pebble cast in a quiet lake. For a while neither of us said anything, he was still turning the metaphor over in his mind, and at last he spoke. Yes, the lake must be very, very calm, like the Sea of Galilee after the Master bade the waves be still. The human spirit is like that, and only God himself can bid it be still. It is strange. He went on confidently, that just this morning I was writing in my little book, he thumbed through a few pages and began reading in a low voice. 
This is one of God's best mornings. I have listened carefully, and He has said many things in my spirit. He spoke through the warm sunlight and the flowering bushes and the smile on Mrs. Krause's face when she told me her son was coming home. Looking at him as he leaned back in his chair and closed his book, I thought I should like to take the impression with me. I was about to say goodbye when we were joined by a handsome, middle-aged police lieutenant who kissed the old man on the forehead. Well, Papa, you've found a new friend, have you? Papa's the greatest one for picking up people. The old man introduced us with pride. My son, Frank. Frank, this gentleman is a poet. I'm glad to meet you, sir. Frank held out his hand. Well, Papa, it's about time I took you in. He turned to me again. You know, I have to come home to get any excitement out of life. Nothing ever happens on the force. It gets kind of dull. But with Papa, never a dull moment. There's always something fine happening. He stooped over and raised the old man in his arms. Well, here we go. Good night now. Come and see Papa again. He loves company. As I walked home, the air seemed to crackle with mysterious splendor, so intelligible even for a poem. I took deep, deep breaths, and laughing, was careful to look at the moon over my right shoulder. I could feel the spring rising in me like sap. All the miasmas of the past weeks were gone, and the whole atmosphere of my mind was as clear as the calm evening sky. I have met a good man, a great man, I said to myself. Everybody should know him. So while the elation was still with me, I hurried home, got out my own notepad and pencil, and sit here to write these words.